Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Daniel Janine. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Amanda. Are you so excited? Of course. I mean, this is my... This is my big this is my big day. Big day. Big day for Dan. Big day for me. Uh-huh. Best food stories of April. It was an action-packed month. A lot to get to. Sure was. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Please give us a rating. Please email us if you have any comments or please. suggestions. Please, please, please. We love your feedback and your ideas. We've gotten a lot of good ideas. First up, okay. Last month, we told you about Chef's Table Pastry, Mm -hmm. the new season of the Chef's Table Juggernaut. Uh, It has four episodes. Three of them are about dudes, which I complained about on the podcast. Um, Christina Tosi reached out. Who is the one woman. She is the one woman and the star of one of the best episodes in the series. Uh, So we brought her on to chat a little bit about what the filming was like and how she feels now that it's out. If you don't know who Christina Tosi is, she is the- Founder, CEO of Milk Bar. Yeah. Creative genius, business genius, math wizard. If nothing else, go look up Christina Tosi because you should know more about her. Or watch the episode. Or watch the episode. So, Christina Tosi, welcome to The Upsell. Thank you. Uh, Your new show, Chef's Table Pastry, just aired. I watched the episode. It's amazing. How are you feeling about it? Um, (laughs) It's really funny. I am actually a closeted introvert. Mm -hmm. Like, I would rather... I think, well, most people that get into the kitchen for the right reasons do it because they like hiding mm-hmm. <laughs> or they like they like they like hiding, working hard and then having the thing they send out that they don't have to bring out. Themselves right. Like the you, thing that you worked in basements for 10 years. Yeah. And that's like if for as uncomfortable as an environment as that can be, that's like the, the comfortable place. So that part of it's funny and weird. But um, I, I, I think about I do a lot of things thinking about what I went through and for me, I always tell my team, I'm like, you bring out the best in me and you make me into an extrovert because I remember how hard I worked. And the when you're hiding in a basement, no one can see you. And when you're not the one in charge, really no one can see you. And I remember how proud it used to make me when the people that I worked for had like an article written mm-hmm, about them or where, the where there was something visible to show for like, I work for that person, or I'm a part of that, or I made that cake, or I made whatever it is that you can attach to. And it was the first time my parents too were like, oh, I get it. Like I can be a little less worried because I can see something in the real world that you actually are a part of that that is tangible. Like and val- so for me, validates you. yeah, it's like the, it's the tangibility of validation for others. For me, it's like really funny, like, you want to come to Ohio and like hang out in my in like this sweet little kitchen that I was raised in? Was it an obvious yes for you or was there a little bit of back and forth when they first asked you? I will say immediately the first question I always ask is like when is this and who else is doing it? Mm-hmm. Because I think there's always an element of like what not to be cynical, but like, what are you after? Right, right, right. Because <laughs> a lot of people like trade in that kind of currency mm-hmm. and and always wanting to protect my team and myself and so on. Like, what what is this? And then mm-hmm. there was another part where I told, and and of course they don't, they won't tell you. Like, they won't tell you. Oh, like, they didn't tell you who else is in it. N- no, wow. because they like keep a they keep a tight, tight, tight lip. They I don't figure. want it to leak. Yeah, maybe they haven't made. Who knows, right? Yeah. Like, maybe they haven't made the decisions. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't want it to leak. What have you? And then. I think the other part of it for me was, you know, I'm not 
that, like, I don't think you all understand who I am and what we do at Milk Bar because we're not what, we're not the story that you tell, right? right. Like, we're not the traditional story. You're going to get something totally different than, like, me toiling away in this beautiful, tiny little, like, stainless steel kitchen. Mm-hmm. You're going to get, like, a crazy factory, wild, wonderful worldscape. And then also, then like, I'm going to bring you to the cornfields of Ohio. And that's right. very different. And I almost kept saying no in this way of like, I don't think this is, I don't think you get it. And they're like, no, we get it. Like, we swear we get it. We promise we get it. Trust us, we get it. Um, And from there, it was just a leap leap of faith and a leap of faith of like, are they going to tell the story? Are they going to tell it right? Are they going to? You never quite know when when you when you put yourself out there then like how it will be portrayed, how it will be edited, how it will be received. And was there back and forth about how much access? Because I noticed there they weren't like in your personal home. There wasn't a lot of like they you shoot, and your marriage yeah, in it. They shoot for fourteen days, which was the other thing of like I was like uh, no, like, 14, yeah. you cannot have 14 days of my life. My husband doesn't get 14 days of my life. Like, right. that's not a reality. Um, and they ended up figuring out how to, like, uh, get in, shoot, get out. But they chose, they shot a ton of stuff that they didn't use. Mm-hmm. So, like, they shot, they shot scenes with, like, Will and I eating cereal and, like, being dumb about something, to which we were like, we, we wouldn't I really do. Make that. <laughs> Literally, I was yeah. like, make the ugliest face because we're not, we don't. Just in the funny way of, like, this is not what we do at home. Like, we would, like, whatever, go out on city bikes and go figure out where, like, the dirtiest, sloppiest burger is Mm -hmm. that is really far away. But uh, I think more than anything, it was, like, the leap of faith trust of they are storytellers. They're genuine. um, They, like, deep down, I think, are the most trusted in wanting to tell your story for them it's not about food which I thought was really interesting Mm -hmm. in getting to know David Gelb and Andrew Freed and the team it's there it's not like about creating food porn or what have you for them they're like we love telling the stories of people and like how you rose from this to this yeah Yeah. and from that standpoint it was like you just got to trust and you got to make sure that you're being as genuine and authentic when you're spending time with these people as they're trying to figure out like what they're going to shoot and mm-hmm. how they're going to tell the story. They, the producers have gotten some flack from, yeah. from me and others about <laughs> the number of women they included. Yeah. Like it was, I was so excited to see you on there, but I wish there had been more ladies. Yeah. What's your take on that? It's real interesting because I have a few different takes. So at first, um, I am a very opinionated person and I try to always not start with being offended because I know myself well enough to know like I'll always start with the negative mm-hmm. before I see the positive. That's what Sounds when you're pursuing <laughs> anything, right? Like that's act- always being in, in that like constant improvement space. Um, at first, interestingly enough, I was like, I'm offended that there's only four episodes of pastry. Right. Like this should be like one a full out, of season. Pr- out of like a protective like reaction of my field I was like why only four Mm -hmm. and then from there interestingly enough I didn't I didn't know there was no way to know who else was being filmed um and in an interesting way when it was like why the question came out of like why aren't there more women and women are such a dominating force in pastry in a hilarious way I was like I'm offended by that statement because what I hated about being a pastry cook growing up in New York City was that 
fighting to even have a foothold in a kitchen that it was like, okay, fine, but you, but you're pastry. Like women right. are pastry chefs. Right. If if there's any space for women for a woman in the kitchen, it's as a pastry chef. And so, in an interesting way, that dynamic for me like hits a personal tone of I would always try and find a way to like wiggle onto the savory line or into the right, savory right, right. side of the kitchen because I was like I don't want to be pigeonholed as the woman. Does exist. It like, does. So many women have achieved like greatness sure. in pastry. Sure. And on the savory side, in an interesting mm-hmm. way, after all of after this conversation came out, I have spoken to David Gelb a few times and he was like, I got to tell you, like, we totally miss like that was such a big miss for us. And like, like he didn't shame, expect this. He didn't expect it in a and in a way like the way he described it was first with humility of like, you're like, that's so right. We should have we should have seen it. We should have done a better job. And in another really humble way, like, holy smokes, I didn't realize that this little idea that I had to tell people stories was going to become such a thing mm-hmm. that now I'm the one with the responsibility and not right. in a way that was at all in the tone of I don't want the responsibility, but with the like, wow, it's super clear to me that I now have the responsibility and I'm going to take that really seriously. And I feel like that in the entire conversation is the is the most is the best possible outcome of mm-hmm. like people saying like I want to call I want to call out the situation I don't like the way it looks allowing for plenty of opinions and then allowing for someone who's like brainchild it is to be like whoa we missed mm-hmm. that we're comfortable saying we missed it and also we take this like responsive this like kind of found responsibility. Yeah, and for him realizing really the seriously. power that he has as the storyteller, that people actually care yeah. about this show yeah. and what it's doing. It, exactly. And just the level of like, I was like, what do you need help with? You know, like, do you need, do you need help? Do you need support? Do you need help finding people? Mm-hmm. Do you need, like, what is it? Because there are a million and one people, men, women, otherwise, that will give, you know what I mean? Yeah. That will give like, you a give laundry list of incredible people to cover. Also, more more dessert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more, more dessert. dessert. Awesome. Well, everybody, check out Chef's Table Pastry, especially Christina's episode. Christina Tosi, thank you so much. Thanks, Amanda. Next up, White Castle is serving the Impossible Burger in a slider form. This is the vegan burger. Uh, we are bringing on Ryan Sutton, our critic here in New York, who gave a review of this burger. He went and tried it, compared it to the beef burger. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, Amanda? Doing doing really well. Uh, okay, so first up, tell us tell us about the Impossible Burger okay. and where yeah, it's, where it's been up until now. Uh, the Impossible Burger uh, is a product of Impossible Foods, which is a Silicon Valley startup, and their goal is to produce all the taste and deliciousness of a burger uh, without uh, destroying uh, the very world uh, from which we come. Uh, Because Mm. cows, of course, take up a lot of resources. If you want to have a cow, you have to have a lot of land. And using that cow essentially takes up the resources of all those lands. So it's about water. It's about land use. Don't forget about their farts. And don't forget about their farts. And smell really bad. And (laughs) they smell uh, really bad. And their their poop. That's correct. Uh, So the good people uh, or 
uh, the people who allege they are good at Impossible Foods, uh, decided to make a fake burger. They're not the first person to do that. We've had veggie burgers for uh, decades, and they've been available to people for decades from your local grocer. What's different from these people is that they've designed it not to taste like a bean patty or a soy patty. They've designed it to taste precisely like a regular burger. Uh, and they even use a little bit of what they call uh, plant-based protein. They call it heme. The larger name is hemoglobin. And it's similar to the hemoglobin you find in your bloodstream, which carries oxygen to some part of your body, whatever. <laughs> and anyway, uh, the Impossible Burger, uh, at its peak, occasionally they say it bleeds. I've never encountered this, but essentially you can have a medium-rare veggie burger. Uh, up until now, it's been at a restaurant called Nishi uh, in New York City, which is a David Chang restaurant, and it's their kind of gourmet version of the Impossible Burger, a little bit more expensive. Uh, here at White Castle, of course, it's cheaper. Uh, and I Was think Nishi the only place serving it up till now? Uh, you've had a few different places. I believe it debuted at David Chang's Nishi, uh-huh. and then it gradually um, it gradually went to other chains such as Umami Burger mm. and um, Bear Burger, and a few other chains. I believe right now Impossible Burgers claims it's being sold in uh, thousands of restaurants across the country. So it's 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 not quite limited in scale at this point, although it's not yet available in your grocer's freezer. What's unique about White Castle is that it is the first wide-scale fast food chain. Because uh, up until now, it's been served at these kind of by Chloe style lifestyle restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, the Bear Burgers, the Umami Burgers, you know, the type of people who would, you know, go to Soul Cycle and then have like a nice vegetarian burger. Yep. This is uh, a vegetarian burger for the people. I love it. Wow. And for those of you who don't know White Castle, but I assume many of you do, they're famous for their very small sliders. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Uh, they're about an ounce each. Uh, they're grilled over onions. They're placed on a little bun. Whenever you hear the term slider, you can probably uh, tip your hat to White Castle, one of the oh. country's oldest fast mm-hmm. food chains. I believe it started in uh, early 1920s in Wichita, Kansas. Um, now they're mostly on the eastern seaboard. Uh, originally, the sliders are priced anywhere from uh, 5 to $0.10. Cents. Uh, now they cost about a buck in New York City. And the Impossible Slider, I believe, costs about twice as much, wow. about a dollar. $1.99 or thereabouts. Is it available in all White Castles now? It's available, to the best of my knowledge, mostly in uh, New York, New Jersey, and Chicago. And how is it? Uh, it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, by <laughs> fast food standards. I mean, listen, yeah. my gripe with the original Impossible Burger I had at Nishi was that when you, you go to a, a a restaurant, you expect nuance in your burger. You expect pure product. You expect high-end beef. You expect depth of flavor. Uh, when you eat the Impossible Burger, you, you don't get all those subtle nuances of burger. You don't. Uh, this is not something you're going to write poetry in the woods about. It, it doesn't have funk. It doesn't have you know. It doesn't linger on the palate for three minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. What it mimics uh, very expertly is the umami nature of real meat. Uh, it tastes savory. It makes you salivate. Uh, it has that beautiful Maillard char. And you have a bite. It almost tastes a little bit like maitake mushrooms. It's pretty cool. And then a second later, uh, you get nothing. It's like textured salt protein, which is another way of saying it tastes precisely like any other commodity burger you've had. But it doesn't have any of the contaminants you usually expect <laughs> in you know, commodity beef. It, it feels you, a little yeah, bit Yeah, you cleaner. don't feel guilty about it. So it, in other words, you know, at, 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 at a high-end restaurant, I don't think this works. But at 
at a, a at a place where your burger isn't about the beef. It's about you know the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. It's about the condiments, it's about the jalapenos, it's about the cheese. I think the Impossible Burger actually works better than commodity beef. So you wow. could see this at McDonald's or In-N-Out's or chains like that across the country. One hundred percent, especially because when you go to those places, uh, forget about flavor. Uh, let's think about texture. Have you ever had like a good Maillard char on a on a McDonald's burger? No, no. it's a great steamy. Yeah, it's steamy. Yeah, it's it's steamy. a great slab of beef. Same thing with White Castle. Uh, it's essentially it's like a gray little slice of you know someone who poorly cooked a cheesesteak. Mm. Uh, this has real. This had real crust to it. It had real texture. It was well, and for me, a lot of the guilt I feel about going to a fast food restaurant isn't what I'm doing to my body, but it's what I'm doing to the world. Like this is commodity, shitty food, and it's bad for everybody. So if I could get an Impossible Burger at a McDonald's or an In-N-Out or a White Castle, like maybe I'll go there more often. Maybe you'll go there more often. Um, but just let's uh, you know put things in perspective since we're talking about you know the the greater good or lack thereof at fast food. Uh, you know White Castle is still a place that sells you know Monster Energy drinks uh, <laughs> that advertises you know its sliders at um, by selling them by the case. Uh, I believe it it still does sell, even though it's unsweetened and low calorie, it sells, you know, iced tea by the gallon in certain locations. So these are places that kind of are, in my opinion, and this you can contest this, are kind of dumping cheap calories upon the populations Mm -hmm. of the world. And, And generally speaking, they're not known for paying their workers terribly well. They would counter they provide great entry-level jobs. Mm-hmm. So is this the start of a, of a monumental rise for Impossible Foods? Uh, possibly. Uh, it, it depends on how it's adopted by the public. You know, I'm just a critic, and I ordered it, and I thought it tasted good. I think the larger question is, are people actually going to eat the Impossible Burger? And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see about that. Uh, I mean, listen, when you walk into a White Castle that is currently testing the Impossible Burger, uh, you see a few placards in the table. But generally speaking, most of the people I interacted with, or at least that I waited online with, were ordering regular burgers, and mm-hmm. they you know, brushed mm-hmm. off the thought of getting something new. Most people, um, when you go into Taco Bell, I think people expect innovation. When you mm-hmm. go into a Chick-fil-A or White Castle, you go there to get the same thing you've got over and over again. People don't, you know, and so it, I think it's a good question whether this will bring in a new customer segment, because of course, White Castle has always been known as kind of like this ut stoner food, or maybe ut <laughs> isn't even the right word, it's, it's been <laughs> just, known as stoner, stoner food. <laughs> And and so will this bring in you know the the buy Chloe set or the bear burger set or the umami burger set? Um, it's unclear. And if you don't bring in those people, it's it's also a question of are are you going to convince the people who already like this product uh, to try something substantially different without meat? Uh, I think it's a tough sell, uh, even though I think they're moving in the right direction. Cool, awesome. Well, maybe we'll try it, Dan. We should try it. Yeah, if I'm ever out in Deep Bushwick, which sometimes I am. Which you were this weekend. Yeah, I'll go try it. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Amanda and Dan. Okay, so next up, pancakes. Now, I didn't really go deep into this story. This isn't the story that you typically care about. I don't care about one-off. What does that mean? Like, stories that have no greater meaning outside of this one story. Like, one crazy thing happened, and it will probably never happen again, and it's not saying anything about society or culture or a trend or anything. Oh, wow. So, like... One-off weird thing. It happens all the time. And these are the stories that always go viral. So a couple of the ones I suggested for this month, like... Uh, Do you want to read the headlines of the stories you suggested that I didn't want to talk about? Sure. Um, a Welsh restaurant tweets out personal details of a customer who didn't turn up, who no-showed. Yeah, so like that's a story that would get a lot of clicks, but I don't want to talk about it. What else? People are blowing up their Yeti coolers over a canceled NRA discount. <laughs> 
mean, that's just stupid. <laughs> but yeah, I don't. I don't think we need. I don't know. I don't know if there's much more to the story than the headline. You know, I don't even know it's where. Like where would you go from there? What people were doing with their Keurig machines. Uh, there was the one of the. I don't know where he is, but a, a restaurant owner. A restaurant owner got the details of a woman who wrote a three-star Yelp review. Oh, and went to her house. And went to her house. Yeah, at that's 10 just PM. like one-off creep dude. Yeah. So there's one that we are going to talk about yep. because I think there's there's a little humor in it that read that you, that Amanda you, you Clute, enjoy. The most important story out of these four for Amanda Clute <laughs> is that a teacher was suspended by his school for making pancakes for his students during a statewide exam. Yeah, like. Dumb story, but there's a fun there's a fun twist for our PR and marketing friends out there. Yeah. So So lay it on me, what happened? So Kyle Byler, an eighth grade teacher at Hand Middle School, Hand Middle School, anyway, uh, was suspended without pay and warned that he would be fired for causing a distraction while his students took the Pennsylvania System of School Assessment or PSSAs. It, it the reason that they had threatened uh, such such crazy action on him mm-hmm. is that uh, as a proctor of exams, he had taken a, a proctoring exam class, mm-hmm. and they had given you know, they give a list of all the things you can't do. And basically, one, and one of them is pancakes. One of them is pancakes. <laughs> no, you just can't distract the you students. You can't distract in any the way. students. You, when I mentioned this to you before, you said you thought the pancakes might be helpful. I think it gives the students sustenance, a yeah. little jolt of sugar and carbs before a really hard test. And like shows some them of those that they kids are maybe cared skipped for. breakfast. Yeah. yeah. They feel loved. Yep. A lot of this is all about confidence, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so he was suspended. And then they, the, the bunch of the kids protested it. Everybody they, protested it. They were like, we love Kyle. He got his job back. The twist is that, so in a huge win for a PR firm, uh, Holiday Inn Express sent Kyle Byler a one-touch pancake machine and enough batter to last him for the remainder of the year. There's so many of these shots that mm-hmm. PR firms will take that no that never get picked up. Yeah. And so many Kyle Bylers of the world are sitting with, with one touch pancake with one machines. Touch pancake machines from the holiday inn. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you send out a thousand and 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 one out of a thousand one uh, ends up on the upsell. Cairo seven news will report it. Yeah. So here's the quote. As a hotel brand that knows how important an energizing breakfast is to being the readiest in all caps. I don't know, is that a holiday inn expression? Maybe. Uh, for the day ahead, Holiday Inn Express salutes Byler for taking the initiative and making pancakes for his students, said Lauren Schuster, manager of PR firm Weber Shandwick. Oh, you're giving the PR firm a shout out too. Is this a shout out? <laughs> you were shouting out both Holiday Inn and the PR firm. I mean, it's yeah, like a shout out to Lauren Schuster. Yeah. Well, it's a huge win, you know, like (laughs) Uh, the brand welcomes this teacher back to school and hopes he and his students enjoy their very own one touch pancake machine as much as Holiday and Express guests do. Great. Everyone wins in the story. Yeah. What's next? Well, this isn't even like I just. Oh, you have more thoughts? No. Yeah. I just wish they did a better job of really supporting this. Every single sentence of this is lined with Holiday Inn. Of course. That's her job. Yeah, I know, but it, it It's a stupid story. I she love... knows it's a stupid story. She knows that she's <laughs> being ridiculous and everyone is ridiculous. Like the the best possible outcome for her is being able to mention her brand. Call me a romantic. But I love when the PR move is to send it in an unmarked box with no return address and then maybe 3 what? months from now you find out it was from Holiday Inn <laughs> Express. It's not a PR move. No one does that. I like That's the not long a common game. Thing. I like the... There is no long game. <laughs> 
I don't know. I just think this is like hearing from your friends. Like you don't just get a secret thing from a PR person where they never reveal who it's from. It's just like a little class that's in my PR whole, moves. That's the whole transactional <laughs> arrangement. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right person to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. Amanda, what's the worst experience you've ever had finding a candidate? We get a lot of job candidates who are not qualified. That's the problem. Really? So we'll post a thing and a lot of people will apply and then their only experience is like Foot Locker. And it's a job where I need years and years of experience. Right. You're not talking like they say like four years in journalism as opposed to five you're talking about. No, like literally I've only worked at Foot Locker doing retail sales. Which is fine for an Instagram account. Entry level. No, not even that. Really? Like that you're not reading the job app. Oh, that's actually a thing? Yeah, they just mass mass application. ZipRecruiter must have known that this was a problem. Yeah, they knew. They knew. They learn what you're looking for and identify people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. Yeah, it's better. It's more proactive. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Wow. Yep. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. This past week, a giant opening happened in Chicago. It is the opening of the new McDonald's at the base of the McDonald's headquarters. So we decided to bring on Ashok Selvan to talk about it. He is one of our editors at Eater Chicago. Hey, Ashok. Hey, how are you? Tell us about this new McDonald's. Well, it's literally in the in the belly of the beast. Uh, there's a new a nine-story uh, McDonald's headquarters in the West Loop, and that's it's on one of the hottest stretches of uh, Chicago restaurants. It's probably one of the hottest uh, dining districts in the country. Wow. And uh, this restaurant opened on Tuesday, and it has these giant, Touch, uh, touch screens for, for ordering, they have table service, and being that uh, it is uh, on one of the hottest stretches in Chicago, they decided to, uh, to up the ante a little bit with the menu, and they are offering international items found at uh, rest- McDonald's restaurants in other countries. So this is the, they're billing it as a one-of-a-kind restaurant, it's a 6,000 square foot spot, Damn. and you can get burgers from Canada a mixed spicy chicken from Hong Kong. And for some reason, there's a trio of salads from France. And <laughs> I, I didn't know the French were so into salads. But the, the strange part there, there's a Manhattan salad and there's an Italian salad with uh, mozzarella. Huh. So I, I don't know. I don't understand that. But um, And the Manhattan you know, the, salad is not something we can get in Manhattan. No, no. It, this, is, this is bizarre. I, I guess this is what... Uh, they see uh, New Yorkers as uh, imbibing, but it's very strange. But it was just pillaged on uh, on Wednesday. There were <laughs> long lines, crowds, and uh, the international items sold out. And are they going to keep bringing in different international menu items, or is this um, the Hong Kong and the Canadian burger and, and the Australian fries? Is that what they're going to be doing all the time? They said they're going to rotate it like, very ambiguous every couple months uh, and uh, of items was designed to uh, kind of uh, placate Chicagoans' local taste. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, but I'm, I'm hoping that we can get the Korean burgers, the bulgogi burgers in Korea, or the lamb McSpicy, because uh, they have that in London. 
So uh, hopefully we're going to see a, a bit of everything. What about the um, the other modern touches? Like there's touchscreens, which I think we're all seeing in our local McDonald's. But like, there is table service going to be a thing that? Well, there are uh, a lot of materials that I've been reading over the last like um, about a year. They've been touting the McDonald's experience of the future. And until now, they haven't really told us what that means. And believe me, I, I've tried to get a little bit uh, from uh, their, their spokespeople. But uh, besides the touchscreens, the table service, uh, they hope to have all of this in place and elements by 2020 and McDonald's all across the country. Huh. Now, you might not see everything there, but like, uh, for instance, at the, uh, the Chicago McDonald's, they have tables with uh, little, uh, you know, those little pads for uh cordless charging for your uh, your smartphone mm-hmm. that will be part of a package uh, you know individual owners operators can purchase if they think the mcdonald's uh, customers at that particular location are into it mm. but uh, you're gonna see table service uh, at this mcdonald's you have baristas because wow. um, there's there's a very coffee shop vibe because they just it just, it just feels like they're they're so uh oh desperate but they're so <laughs> open to Whatever will work. Capture new audience. <laughs> Everything, and they're just throwing things on the wall. And you know, the, the this is kind of an experiment to see what works and what doesn't. And if it is successful, uh, you ex- definitely expect to see some of these touches at your neighborhood McDonald's. So, if you are in an upmarket neighborhood, maybe you will have Wi-Fi and charging stations and table service. Um, but if you are a franchisee elsewhere, you might not want to take on these things. No, no. If, if you're, especially if you're in a small like, footprint, but there's not a lot of seating, you don't mm-hmm. really want your customers to, to linger. So, uh, no. But w- one thing I, I thought that was neat, parking is so difficult at this particular McDonald's because of all the, the trendy restaurants. And, you know, for the, uh, the press event, it took me about 25 minutes to find parking, which was oh really annoying. <laughs> but uh, just as an aside, they have four parking spots dedicated for McDonald's. Uh, two are for mo- mobile ordering and two are for Uber Eats. So you could you know, have a, you know, the minivan full of kids coming from the Bulls game because United Center is a couple blocks away. And you can mobile order your, uh, your uh, Big Macs, your quarter pounders, get your order, and then you could sit in your car and and you know, enjoy your your happy meals, et cetera. I thought that was a little bit of a uh, funny solution for the uh, the problem with uh, no parking. It just emphasizes how many things they're throwing at the wall. Like they're doing the Uber Eats, mobile ordering, you know, the, the, the Wi-Fi and the charging stations and the international dishes, and the and they're trying to do healthy dishes and and trying all these different things to modernize. Yeah, uh, I mean. I'm just kind of scarred right now by the mushy pasta in the one of the French salads. It was, it was not very tasty. I'll just I'll just put it that way. I mean, uh, hopefully that that's some, one experiment that uh, you know we don't see a repeat repeat of. Yeah, that that's a problem. Is um, the food might still be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had a, they had a McFlurry, and I, I totally forgot a McFlurry from Brazil, and it has kind of a stellar name, the McFlurry. Prestigio, and <laughs> it's mixed in with strawberry sauce and these like kind of a uh, chocolate coconut candies, and that is a pretty strong item. Hmm. I'd say that 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 will be a, a big hit. Uh, they have a huge patio, but uh, I asked the I asked the, the folks over there if they're ever going to apply for a liquor license, and they kind of laughed at me because that's a big thing in Chicago because it was a well, the first, Taco Bell's uh, been American doing it. city. With, yeah, with Taco Bell. Uh, the, the cantina. 
but they're they're not after that market yet. So I thought that was kind of neat. But uh, a McFlurry um, sitting down on Randolph Restaurant Rose does sound appealing. Well, that's that's refreshing that there is one thing in the liquor license that they are yeah. not trying. Twenty only twenty things at a time. <laughs> Ashok, thank you for calling in. Um, Next time I'm in Chicago, I'm actually going to try this thing. I, I think if they were to bring all this stuff to my local McDonald's, my local McDonald's would not succeed at executing any of it. Mm. Um, they're not the best at that. But I bet the Chicago one is running on all cylinders. <laughs> one of the big stories of the month uh, is New Noma. Uh, Pete Wells, the New York Times critic, went over there and reviewed it. He is one of the many critics from the States who has gone over to review it. So we thought we would bring on our restaurant editor, Hillary Dixler, to talk about New Noma and what the deal is with all of these critics heading over to Copenhagen. Hi, Hillary. Hi. So Noma, which is it's run by Chef Rene Redzepi, it closed and then reopened. Can you tell, tell us about that timeline a little bit? Yeah. So the original Copenhagen restaurant closed in February of 2017. Um, it wasn't a surprise. We knew it was coming. Um, and uh, Redzepi had let the world know that it, the closure would be temporary, that he had a plan to open a new Noma with a farm and in a different space. And in the time in between the closure and the reopening, um, he did his uh, Tulum Mexico pop-up, which, sidebar, a lot of critics went to, and that <laughs> one was only for seven weeks. Like, they can't get enough of this guy. They, they can't. He's great, they think. Um, How different is this new one from the old one? Visually, it's pretty different. Um, the, it's in a new space, um, a different location, and it looks, while still very Nordic in nature, uh, it does look different. Um, the, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say broad strokes, it's not that different. Right. It's still a tasting menu. It's still... Um, obsessed with fermentation, uh, obsessed with um, what Rene Redzepi calls, quote, a sense of time and place, which in which he is, you know, expressing where and when he is, which is Copenhagen, comma, now, uh, <laughs> through food on the plate. So, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of makes it seem like it's a little bit the same. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I was thinking. Like, does it really merit this all these people flying over there and reviewing it. And like, uh, I think you can go through the timeline, but it, it opened, reopened in late February. And then a bunch of reviews came out within a month. Oh yeah. The, the reviews came out super fast. I believe Jonathan Gold was the first big critic to file and his review hit on March 2nd. From the LA, LA Times. As a, I'm sorry. Yeah. Jonathan Gold of the LA Times. He liked it. He liked it. After Jonathan, it was what, the Washington Post and then GQ? Yeah. So basically what it means is that these critics or their assistants um, signed on when the reservations went live and pounced. Because, I say that because the reservations for Nunoma, they sold out in less than 24 hours. So all of these critics were just on the ball. Just like, I need to go to Noma. And then Pete, <laughs> Pete went a little later and filed uh, just last week. Correct. And, and what's the deal with his review? His review is presented as an FAQ mm -hmm. in which he asks and answers questions about Noma. I would say what's interesting about his review coming as late in the 
relatively speaking, as late in the process, actually brings us to one of the things that is new about Nunoma, which is that instead of like regularly updating the menu as fancy restaurants are wont to do, Noma's operating in seasons where like the first menu of the season was seafood and now they're going to move into vegetables in June and then they're going to go into whatever their fall menu is. So Pete Wells filed in April, April 24th, on the seafood menu, which is over in another few weeks. So not only is there a question about like, oh, well, do New York Times readers care? And are they ever going to go to Noma? They're never going to have this menu unless they get, I just checked Talk, which is the reservation ticketing software that Noma uses. Um, And there are some surprise reservations open for mid-May, but like it puts a point on the question of like, what is the point of reviewing these restaurants? Yeah, that's what I wanted want to ask you a little bit about. Like, if you yeah. are reading the LA Times or the New York Times or the Washington Post, they, they, I think they all consider themselves to be national papers, but most likely mm-hmm. you live in that region. Why do you want to read a review of this restaurant in Copenhagen, if at all? I think the answer is that dining obsessives of America, the people who really care when a review comes out, do want to know about Noma because Noma is that prominent within our kind of restaurant world psyche. So to me, I have no problem with reading these reviews. And in fact, I've really enjoyed reading them because I too want to know about what people think the snail broth tastes like (laughs) and what is it anyway. Um, As I kind of alluded to earlier, I think it makes a lot more sense to review new Noma than it did to review the Noma Mexico pop-up, for example, which was a limited time frame, sold out, and was really just, to me, like an exercise in FOMO of like, I went to the Noma pop-up and you didn't. That could have been every headline. It's also interesting to me that they don't do this for any other international restaurants. Like, we cover so many places. You you are on top of all these big international openings. Is there another place that you think... Like, could get this kind of attention or should get this kind of attention? I mean, should plenty, you know, too too many to name. It's a big world out there with lots of great restaurants in it. Um, Do I think there's another place that would? You know, offhand, no. I thought, um, let me, yeah, no, I I don't see this really, I I don't think this is going to, start creating more, you know, international restaurant reviews. I mean, not to say that there won't be any. I almost feel like the equivalent would be like if Pete Wells went and ate Jiro's sushi, maybe he would review yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's kind of a parallel. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my take is like, if it doesn't seem worth it to me if you're if you're trying to write for a local audience to send someone to this restaurant that is already so hyped up and, and overcovered. But on the other hand, if you're thinking of it the way you think about art, like I would expect mm-hmm. the New York Times to go to Milan to cover a biennial because it's really important and it's people do in New York do want to read about it. So if it is this cultural moment, yeah. it is this art, like almost artistic thing. But that said, I would want more of it. I would want to see not just Noma, but also like whatever these other big deal international chefs are doing in Japan or in Peru. Right. Also Mugris, also the Fat Duck, also, yeah, yeah I mean, all of the places. I mean, I, I I'm a Noma apologist, you know, for all the <laughs> mocking that I do. It it covers up the the deep deep desire I have to go experience it for myself, and um, I, I think it's well and appropriate for the New York Times to review Noma. And given Jonathan Gold's stature, I am like 
80% there on sending Jonathan Gold. Um, my one hesitation with that is that he has collaborated a lot with Renee Redzepi. Uh, uh-huh. um, he did Renee Redzepi's MAD conference, um, which to me feels like too close for comfort, in my opinion, for what um, I would want from a reviewer. Was he, um, was he, a, he was just a speaker there or was he planning? He was it a speaker. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm no, a little, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> That's fair. It makes me feel a little funny. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. I think it's like a tougher sell for like why the Washington post should do it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that that's probably um, why the Washington post did it is because it helps get their critic onto that. Yeah. Pete Wells, Jonathan gold play space. They want to be a national publication. They want to be in this conversation. So they yeah. got to get in that sandbox. Yeah, I think it's good. You know, I I think this is something that a lot of people want to know. And I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about yet is I think for the critics, um, because Noma is such a – it was an influencer before we knew that word as Mm -hmm. we know it now. And because Noma has such a strong, like, trickle-down effect, I do think it's worth critics knowing what's going on there Yeah, and kind of being able to, like – catch it as it happens in real time, the, the trickle out. That's like another thing I'm curious about, about their like rotating seasonal menus is, you know, with these menus only existing for a few months, will that change the way Noma is uh, ripped off? Probably. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Well, a note to our critics, if they're listening, if they come to me and say they want to spend two grand to go to new Noma and review it, I'll say no. But if they want to find another international fun place that could be the next Noma, we can go there. And please take me with you. And take Hillary Dixler. She works very hard. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Eater Upsell and our best food stories of April. We have a request at the end of today's show. If you are a fan of Eater, it would be amazing, or actually not a fan, if you could go onto eater.com slash survey and tell us what you think about the site. Special thank you to Ryan Sutton, Hillary Dixler, Ashok Selvam, and Christina Tosi for helping us put the show together this week. And as always, thank you to Miles Yule, who runs Vox Media's engineering, and Carrie Clements, who handles all of our studio booking. And of course, thank you to our executive producer, Maureen Giannone Fitzgerald. <laughs>